This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to the book of Judges, chapter 8. If you need a Bible, you can shoot your hand up in the air. We'd be happy to get a copy to you, so shoot your hand up in the air. We're going to be in Judges, chapter 8, this morning as we continue in our series in this book. And as you turn to Judges, chapter 8, I wonder, has anyone here ever been to Niagara Falls before? Anyone ever been to Niagara Falls before? we got a couple people. Nice. My family and I went there last summer. And it was an amazing thing to see. In Niagara Falls, there are over 2.5 million gallons of water that cascade over those falls per second. They are wide and massive and overwhelming and beautiful. The first place my family and I went to see them was the observation deck which is this high tower where you can kind of look out at a distance and see the falls kind of down below you. And as we got on the observation deck, we did what everyone else was doing on the observation deck. Can you guess what everyone was doing on the observation deck? I'll give you a hint. We'll play a little game of charades. Right? Everyone starts taking selfies. And everyone's doing, you actually are, you kind of like start bumping into each other because like you're not even looking at people, right? You, you, you turn your back, such an interesting thing. You turn your back to the falls that you came to see. You turn your back to the falls and you take a picture of yourself with the falls in the background. After viewing them that way, we went down and got on what is known as the Maid of the Mist. The Maid of the Mist is a ship that takes you out into the very middle of the horseshoe of the falls. And as you get there, you know, you're starting to approach it and you're going fairly slow. You you start taking some more pictures because it's a different angle now. But the closer and closer you get, the phone just has to be put away. Because the force of 2.5 million gallons of water per second cascading over falls creates so much wind and water coming that if your phone is out, it's just going to get blown away. And you're not going to be able to take anything in. The closer you get to the overwhelming nature of these falls, the more that they just become all to consume your view. Sometimes in life, I think that we like to stay on the observation deck as we think about God. We want him in the picture as long as he's in the background and ourselves are in the foreground. He's there but he's just a background to ourselves. We're the center of the selfie. And because of that, we miss out on the closeness that he wants to have with us. That's what we're going to see as we pick up Gideon's story in Judges chapter 8. In chapter 6, Gideon was a fearful man, but God still said to him, hey, I'm going to use you. In chapter 7, God does use Gideon to bring about this miraculous victory. The pattern has been so far in this book that after the judge wins a victory, what happens? It says that the land then had rest, meaning it had peace, for X amount of years. And so we would expect the story to be done in chapter 7. But sadly, it does not end there and actually does not end up ending well. In chapter 8, Gideon's story falls apart because he starts to focus on himself. He starts to put himself at the center of his view. 
selfie culture isn't anything new. It is a tendency that has always resided in the human heart. We want to be at the center and keep God in the background, but in doing so, we miss out on seeing and experiencing how amazing God truly is. And so this morning, I want us to work through this text in four moves where we will see, one, the insecurity of selfie life. That's really what Judges chapter 8 verses 1 through 21 is all about. Then we're going to see the hypocrisy of selfie life, which is what Judges 8, 22 through 32 is all about. Then we're going to see the perpetuation of a selfie life, which is really what chapter 9 is all about. And then we're going to close by seeing the redemption from a selfie life, which is really what the gospel is about. And so I titled this morning's sermon, The Gospel for a Selfie Life. The Gospel for a Selfie Life. I'm going to start by reading the first 21 verses of Judges chapter 8. Please turn your attention now to the reading of God's word and read along with me. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, meaning Gideon, What is this that you've done to us not to call us when you went out to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape of harvest of Ebiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Sokoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zaboth and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the official of Sokoth said, Are the hands of Zaboth and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said to them, Well then, when the Lord has given Zaboth and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flay your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penel answered him as the men of Sokoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penel, When I come again in peace, I'll break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Kekar with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nabal and Jogbeheth and attacked the army. The army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harris. And he captured a young man of Sokoth and questioned him. And wrote down for him the elders and, and officials of Sokoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sokoth and said, Behold, Zaboth and Zalmunna, about whom you talked to me, saying, Are the hands of Zaboth and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to you? And he took the elders of the city, he took the thorns, the wilderness, and briars, and with them taught the men of Sokoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zaboth and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, As you are, so were they. And every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. 
So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw a sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Let's pray that God would now bless the preaching of his word that we just read. Would you bow your heads? And I want to encourage you just to have a time of prayer between you and the Lord, asking God to speak to you. Now, if you would be so kind, would you pray for me that I be strengthened by the Lord to preach in a way that is faithful and clear, helpful to you and honoring to him. God, we're here to hear from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you make these words that you had recorded come alive to our hearts in such a way that a far better sermon would be heard than the one I'm actually going to preach. I praise for the good of our souls and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we begin by looking at the insecurity of a selfie life. Chapter 8 starts out with things going okay. God had given Gideon this victory in chapter 7, but the tribe of Ephraim was upset that they didn't get invited into the battle. They're upset with Gideon. They're like, hey, how come you didn't ask us to fight? And Gideon deals with them wisely. I think about the proverb 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath. Gideon gives them a soft answer. He's like, hey, that battle that we did, that's nothing compared with stuff that you've done. And so, like, I wanted to give other people to have a chance for glory because you already have so much glory. And so these people, they're happy with that answer. And we're wondering at this point, like, hey, maybe Gideon is going to lead the land into rest. Maybe he is going to be a good peacekeeper. Not so much. Because as soon as he gets done talking to the Ephraimites, verse 4 says that he crosses over the Jordan and continues to pursue these two Midianite kings. The Jordan was the river that bordered the promised land and separated Israel from the other lands. And so by crossing over the Jordan, as soon as we read that, here's what we are seeing. Gideon is going beyond what God had told him to do. God had told Gideon to defend the promised land and to free the people from their oppressors, and that had happened in chapter 7. He did not tell him to go pursue them into their own country, but that's what Gideon does in chapter 8. Gideon is now taking war outside of Israel. This is no longer a war for the freedom of Israel. This is a war of conquest. Gideon is dead set on pursuing these guys. Verse 4 says his men are exhausted, but Gideon doesn't care. He's just pushing on. And so he comes up to the tribe of Sokoth, which lived on the border. It was the tribe of Israel that lived on the border between Israel and Midian. And he asked for their help. And they're like, well, like, we don't know how long this this, this campaign's going to go. They're saying, you don't have the hands of these kings yet. So, like, you're asking us just to give you supplies, which is kind of like you're asking us to write a blank check. And so we're not going to do that. Like, we, we, the, in their minds, right, the victory's already won. No one understands why Gideon is pursuing these kings in this way. So they're not going to get behind him. They're not going to support him. 
And, and then we're thinking, okay, well, Gideon, you figured out a way to deal so nicely with the Ephraimites. I'm sure you can figure out a nice way to work things out with these people from Sokoth. Well, not so much. Gideon responds to the refusal to help with a promise that when he comes back, he's going to torture them and kill them. And I read that, and I'm like, well, that kind of escalated quickly. Can I have some bread? No? Okay, I'm going to torture you. I think it's right to see that Gideon has a, he has a few issues going on. As, as the kids might say, Gideon has no chill. The rescuer that God had raised up to liberate Israel from their enemies is now threatening his own people. And then he goes and does the same thing with the tribe of Penel. And then on his way home, did you see what he happens? He does exactly what he promises to do. He tortures and kills the men of Sokoth and Penel. Why? Because he could not stand the fact that they didn't support him. He could not stand the fact that they didn't affirm him in what he was doing. Now, when Gideon was operating on the basis of what God had told him to do, Gideon didn't need other people's affirmation. Other people's opinion of him really didn't matter. Remember in chapter 7, when he told his army, hey, if you're scared and you don't think that, like, I can lead you to victory, you can leave. What happened? 22,000 of the 32,000 of his soldiers, so basically two-thirds, said, hey, yeah, we don't believe you can do it. We're out. And they went home. Talk about a lack of affirmation. But Gideon didn't blink because in chapter 7, he wasn't seeking their affirmation. He was just walking in obedience to what God had told him to do. See, when you know who you are in the Lord, then what other people think about you doesn't matter a whole lot. But when our focus is on ourselves, when we aren't looking to the Lord, but we're just living with ourselves at the center of our lives, then we'll always feel a need for other people's affirmation. And when we don't get it, we freak out. Gideon's anger towards these people is really revealing his insecurity. You see, a self-centered life will always be an insecure life. Because that's what happens when a foundation is too small to hold the structure that's on top of it. See, we are not meant to be the foundation of our lives. God is. But when we put ourselves in the foreground and God in the background, when we are big and God is small, then our foundation is going to be too small to handle our life, and so we'll feel insecure. And we'll constantly be looking to other people to affirm us so that we can feel better and more secure about ourselves. Listen, how much you need affirmation for yourself shows how little you actually view God. And so when we don't get affirmation for ourselves, we then lash out in anger. Gideon is focused on himself, and so he's getting angry at these people because they won't support him. They won't affirm him in what he's doing. And yet, when we go beyond what God says, what are we supposed to do? If someone's going beyond what God says, the last thing we should do is affirm them in that. If someone's going beyond what God says, the last thing we should do is affirm them in that. That is not loving. It is not loving to affirm someone when they're doing something that goes against what God says. That's actually the opposite of love. The Bible says, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes the way you show someone you love them is by not supporting them, by not affirming them when they're doing something that God says is not right. Sometimes we say we're loving someone, but the reality is we just don't want to be uncomfortable ourselves. And so we're scared to say a wrong word because of how the culture might view us, how that person might view us, 
And so actually we're going to affirm them even when they go against something that God's saying. And we're, we're going to justify it by saying we care about them, but the reality is we're just thinking about ourselves. We're not actually caring about what God says. The men of Sokoth and Penel were actually doing exactly what they should have done. They should not have given supply to Gideon to take this war outside of where God had told them to take it. But Gideon can't handle that. Gideon can't handle their lack of affirmation. He's an insecure person, and so he kills them. And, and, and we see why he's pursuing. We see what's going on here. Why, why is he so bent on going after these guys? Well, did you see what it said in verse 19? He says, I, I, I'm going after you because you killed my brothers, the son of my mothers. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he's like, hey, you killed my brothers in battle, and so that's why I'm coming after you. Gideon is, is going after these guys, not because God had told him to bring justice to them. This is not about justice. This is about vengeance. Gideon is looking for payback for how these men had killed his brothers. And notice, he doesn't want to just kill them. He wants to shame them. So he tries to get one of his sons to kill them. In an honor and shame culture, the weaker the person was who killed you, the more shameful a death it was. And so he tries to get his son to do it. But it says that his son was still a young man, which means that his son would have been under, in that culture, being a young man means that you would have been under the age of 12. This is a little boy who's trying to get to kill two grown men. Another sign that Gideon has totally lost his way. The boy can't do it, obviously. And so Gideon does it himself. He was filled with the desire for vengeance because when we are consumed with ourselves, then we can't let go of wrongs that get done against us. When our focus is on the Lord, well, then we just trust that God's going to kind of work stuff out. When our focus is on ourselves, then we can't move on until we feel satisfied in our desire for vengeance. Now, for us, we're probably not going around killing people. At least I certainly hope not. But how often do you feel a need just to tell someone off? They need a piece of my mind. Or maybe you're not the fight type. Maybe you're the flight type. And so you stay silent. But in the hatred of your heart, you're firing bullets of anger as you remove yourself from relationship and just turn a cold shoulder. Gideon's response to people's lack of affirmation about him and his pursuit of vengeance against those who wrong him show us that Gideon's life had become all about him. And a self-centered life is always an insecure life. Gideon is no longer living in the peace and walking in the purpose of God like he was in chapter 7. No, now he is insecure and he's lashing out left and right because in a selfie life is an insecure life. It's also a hypocritical life. It's a hypocritical life. Let's look at the second part here, the hypocrisy of a selfie life. Almost no one's going to come out and say, my life is all about me, right? No, no one's going to come out and own up to the fact that, hey, this is my world, and you're just living in it. But hypocrisy is when we say something with our lips, but then completely contradict it with our lives, which is what Gideon does as we see verses 22 and 23. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Again, this is a good response. Gideon saying, you don't need me to be your king. God's your king. Just keep following him. That's a good response. 
but then watch, that's what he says with his lips, but then watch how he lives his life in verses 24 through 27. Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you, every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. So they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw it, in it the earrings of his spoil. And the way of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold because the crescent ornaments, besides the crescent ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in a city in Ophrah. And all of Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. An ephod was a cloak that had all kinds of jewels on it. It was actually a, a garment that God instructed his priests to make, and the priests were supposed to wear it. They were supposed to wear the ephod when they ministered before the Lord in the tabernacle. It was a visible way to show, hey, we're in God's presence, we're worshiping him, and this is how beautiful and glorious God is. Gideon is creating his own version of that. But he's not a priest, and he's not in the tabernacle. He's taking it back to his own home, where he can wear it himself. And so by creating this ephod, he is directing people's attention away from the tabernacle of God's praise and to himself where he wants worship for him. And if you think about this, this is nuts. Because what had gotten Israel into trouble in the first place? Worship of false idols. And here's Gideon making a false idol and basically telling people to worship him with him. So Gideon said with his lips, hey, it's not about me. I'm not going to be king over you. But how he's living is far, far different. And that's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy. Listen, we need to understand, there's a big difference between hypocrisy and struggling with inconsistency. There's a big difference between that. Sometimes people say, well, we're all hypocrites. No, that's not true. Because there's a big difference between hypocrisy and struggling with inconsistency. On the one hand, none of us are perfect. None of us live perfectly between what we say with our lips and how we live our lives, right? We can struggle, but then what do we do? If the Spirit of God's alive in you, then what you do is when you see where there's an inconsistency, you repent and you turn and you seek to grow and you make progress. And sometimes it's, man, two steps forward and one step back, but, like, it's not about perfection, it's direction. You're trying to follow the Lord, not perfectly, but sincerely, right? That's, that, that, that's not being hypocritical. That, you're not being hypocritical when you're not being perfect. You're just being human. But a hypocrite is someone who says one thing with their lips, but then doesn't care at all about actually living it out in their lives. That's Gideon. He's not struggling with pride here. No, he doesn't care about his pride at all. He's not battling to repent here. No, there's no repentance whatsoever. He's just fully giving himself over to the pursuit of self. He's like, I'm not going to call myself king, but I'm going to live like it. And that's how he ends up living for the rest of his days. Look down at verses 29 through 31. It gets even worse, if you can imagine it. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called him Abimelech. So Gideon has a whole bunch of wives which is something that kings did back then as a way of showing their power. And so once again, Gideon is saying, I'm not your king, but he's acting like he is a king. And one of his wives bears Gideon a son, and he names him Abimelech. Do you know what the name Abimelech means in Hebrew? 
my father is king. No joke. And so Gideon's like, hey, 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 I'm not your king. I'm not your king. Let me introduce you to my son. Right? So think about this. Gideon never would have said that his life was all about him, but clearly that was how he structured his life. I think for us, no one says that our life is all about us, but how is your life structured? I've shared this before, but there's a church consultant who would share about how he would go into churches and they were struggling to engage in mission. And he'd be like, okay, well, let me just be clear with me. Like, what is your mission? And they'd read to him whatever's on the website. And he'd say, hey, it's great. Now, I want to see your church calendar and I want to see your church budget and I'm going to tell you what your mission actually is. His point was that how we use our time and how we use our finances show what we really value. And I'd add a little bit of a nuance to that. The two few times I've been asked to serve pastors who are struggling with how to lead their church, it's been a humbling experience to step into that space. And one of the things I've asked them to do is to carry a notebook with them, or if they're not pen and paper people, to, to make a note on their phone, and just take note of how many times per day they rejoice in the goodness of God. Because if our affections are not regularly being stirred to worship God, that, that means that our life is not structured in a way that is giving us time and opportunity to see him for who he is. Friends, it is so easy to slip into a lifestyle where we're in the foreground and God's in the background. And yet it's so hard to see when we do that. It's so easy to be self-deceived. So actually part of how you know you aren't being self-centered is if you're regularly confessing to others about how you struggle with being self-centered. As everyone who right now is just so worried, like, man, maybe I am self-centered. You probably aren't. It's all the people who are like, well, that's not me. Yeah, you probably need to think a little more hard about your life. If you're confessing and repenting and seeking the Lord and trying to change, but it's a struggle, but like, man, praise God, you're fighting the fight of faith. Praise the Lord for that. But a self-centered person does not see they're usually being self-centered. And so selfie life in that sense is a hypocritical life. It's a hypocritical life. And it's a life that perpetuates itself into others. Let's look at point number three, the perpetuation of a selfie life. Perpetuation of a selfie life. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them, to the whole clan of his mother's family, saying the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. His mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Bereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house of Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on a stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth, and, and all Beth Malu, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. And so Abimelech, Mr. My Father is King, decides that he wants to be king. Israel is not supposed to have a king. Israel is supposed to trust that God is their king. That's what Gideon had said back in chapter 8, verse 23, but Gideon had not lived that way, and now his son is bearing the fruit of the seeds that his father had sowed. 
Abimelech is responsible for his actions, but Gideon is also responsible. In order to be king, Abimelech hires a bunch of tough guys to go kill all his other brothers. He murders them in cold blood. And then he's like, hey, since I'm the only one left, I guess I should be your king now. This is a complete and utter scandal. Israel now has their first king when they shouldn't have. And their king is a brother-murdering scoundrel. And all this goes down in Shechem, which was a holy place for the Jews. It was the birthplace of their nation. It was the place where God first made his covenant with Abraham, that he would make Abraham into the mighty nation of Israel. It was where God renewed his covenant with Joshua when the people first came into the problem land. And so Abimelech being crowned as a king here, one scholar said this would be like slavery being reinstituted at a meeting in Gettysburg or announcing in Montgomery that Jim Crow laws were going to be restored. This is disgrace. This is a scandal. This is holiness being profaned. Jotham, the brother who escaped, he eventually comes out hiding and gets in front of Israel's leaders and tells them this parable about a bunch of trees and a forest who decide they want to choose a king. None of them want to be a king. So they eventually find a tumbleweed and say, will you be our king? Tumbleweed says, sure, but first you have to burn down all the other trees, and they do. And Jotham says to the leaders of Israel, this is what you've done. You've anointed a worthless, self-interested, opportunistic, murderous criminal to lead you. And then Jotham promises them, this is going to come back to burn you. And sure enough, that happens. Abimelech turns out to be a terrible leader. No surprise there. And Judges chapter 9, for the rest of it, records a dizzying account of scandal and sabotage and mass murder all taking place during Abimelech's reign. And eventually all those leaders in Shechem that anointed him revolt against him, fight against him, he comes down on them hard. They have to flee to a city tower, which in those days like a city's stronghold. Abimelech goes to the tower, and ironically, he takes a bunch of tumbleweeds. He packs them around the base of the tower, and then lights it on fire, burning over 100 people alive. He then moves on to the next city, where he drives people again into the tower. When he's about to light that tower on fire, a woman on the top floor takes a millstone, which is basically a kitchen appliance to grind out flour, and leans out the window and drops it on Abimelech's head. It doesn't quite kill him, but it smashes him up pretty bad. And so he's, as he's lying there, he says to a servant, please just finish the job. And the servant does, and he dies. That's chapter 9. And so what we see in chapter 9 is that instead of the land being at peace, it is thrown into chaos. But this time, it is not because of any external enemies, but all because of the seeds that Gideon had sown. Here's what we need to see. How we live impacts others. How we live impacts others. Our lives are never contained just to us. But for better or worse, our lives will influence others around us. And so when we live with a self-centered view of life, that sets an example for others to do the same. And so Judges chapter 8 and 9 are really just a big warning to us about the dangers of having a selfie life. 
It will make you insecure and set you against other people. It will create a hypocrisy within your soul, and it will lead others astray. And I think it is so important for us to hear this, especially as we're sitting here in 2023 in America. We need to hear the warning of these chapters. Why? Because we live in a culture that tells us every single day that life is all about us. We're we're told every single day that what we need is more self-esteem. Because, baby, you're a firework, right? This is what we're told all the time. Our problem is that we aren't thinking about ourselves enough. We just need more self-esteem. We just need more affirmation. But if that were true, shouldn't we expect things to be getting better? Because we've never lived in any time in history where it's been easier to be affirmed for who you are. We've never lived in any time of history where it's been easier to do whatever you want and be celebrated for it. And so we should expect that our society is the healthiest it's ever been. And yet the exact opposite is the case. Every mental health indicator shows that as a society, we're getting worse. We have higher rates of depression, higher rates of anxiety, and terrifyingly, we have skyrocketing rates of self-harm and suicide especially among people underneath the age of 25. Friends, I think that should be a loud warning to us about the dangers of a selfie life, a life that is all about learning to love you. This is a warning that we need to hear because there are literally lives at stake. You see, as people chase the idol of themselves, they will find it, we'll find it, unsatisfying. And that can take us to some very dangerous places. A life that is based on self is a life that's being set up to crumble because its foundation cannot hold. And I just want to be clear, that's not just like an out there in the world issue. That's like in here in the church issue also. So often, even as Christians, we come to church. Why? Because we want to be blessed. We come to church because we want Jesus to do all these things for us. And listen, praise God, Jesus can do things for us, absolutely. But if we come to Jesus just for what he gives us, then our life is still about us. Listen, Jesus came to give us more than just blessings. He came to give us himself. And really that takes us to the final point this morning, the redemption from selfie culture. You see, what Gideon needed, what Abimelech needed, is the same thing that we need. Because what Gideon was ultimately looking for and what Abimelech was ultimately looking for is what we're ultimately looking for. And it's it's really just that the ultimate verdict of our life is that we are somehow important and valuable. We all look for this verdict every day in all the situations of people around us. And so it's like every day we're on a trial. This this is how people's identity works, right? In the courtroom, you have persecution, you have persecution, you have prosecution, and you have the defense. And everything you do, we're either providing evidence for the prosecution about how bad we are, or evidence for the defense about how great we are. Some days we feel like we're winning the trial. Other days we feel like we're losing it. But friends, Jesus came to end the trial. He came to bring the ultimate verdict. And he did that by allowing himself to be put on an unjust trial and sentenced to death. He then went to a cross where he was struck and beaten and crushed as our substitute. So he could take the condemnation that we deserve. Jesus faced the trial that should be ours so that we do not have to face any more trials, but we can know that we are loved by God. 
those who put their faith in Jesus, the almighty maker of the universe, the one whom scripture says that the sinless angels have to hide their faces before his holy presence. This transcendent, exalted, magnificent, unparalleled, glorious God says to us in Christ, Jeremiah 31, 3, I've loved you with an everlasting love. This glorious God says to us in Christ, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, because of the great love with which I loved you, even when you were dead in your trespasses, I made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Friends, if you place your faith in Jesus, then the only person whose opinion counts looks at you and says, I'm willing to die for you because I love you. And that's not meant you to take you to go home and then look in the mirror and think about what a special snowflake you are. No, it's meant to lead you to get on your knees and worship him for how great he truly is. When we see God's love for us, it doesn't take us into us. No, it leads us to worship of him because we say with the psalmist in Psalm 63:1, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. This is how Jesus redeems us from our selfie lives. He shows us our greater love than self-love. He shows us his love. And today, I think God's inviting all of us Put our selfie sticks down. What are ways that you're tempted to put yourself at the center of your life? What are ways that you can be in the foreground and keep God in the background? Today, I believe God's inviting us to put our selfie sticks down so we can get closer to his massive, overwhelming, and powerful love so that we can feel the cascading force of who he is and just get lost in worship and wonder at his greatness. Listen, friends, we will not be satisfied until we do so. And we'll never be unsatisfied if we do so. Let's bow our heads in word.